Hey, everybody, we're here alive and thrive in Toronto, home of Blue Jays, Raptors, Maple Leafs, and Canadian psychic Robert Lindsay Milne. That's me. Welcome to my side of the crystal ball. We've got a great show for you tonight, a couple of really good guests, a good WWRS. But before I continue with that, I would just like to take this moment to wish all my Jewish brothers and sisters around the world a very, very happy Hanukkah. And uh, today is the, tonight is the fourth night of Hanukkah. And when I think of Hanukkah, I think of happiness and laughter and dancing and food and family and happy Hanukkah, everybody. So um, now, uh, so I'd like to introduce our guests or talk about our guests. Um, first, first, first one, of course, is WWRS. I'm going to be talking about trust, going to do that very, very shortly. Then um, on the experts chair tonight, Tinkerbell Bochuk. Um, interesting name, fabulously interesting person, psychic, medium, channeler, spiritualist, which and many, many other things. And one thing that she is, is determined, dedicated, as, as well as very kind and loving. One other thing about Tina Tinka is that she's very much like um, many of her contemporaries. Most of us have been through some types of physical trauma, abuse, and issues. She'll be talking about those, how she's healed from them, and her amazing um, life journey and um, healing. My very next guest after that in the expert's chair is someone I've known also for a while, Sharmini Varunan. Sharmini is um, a really lovely person, uh, very intelligent, poised, polished, educated, Charmini is a nurse. Charmini is a palliative care nurse. She's been a nurse now for 10 years. Five of them is in palliative care. She is kind and loving, and that I guess that helps with that profession. She's going to be talking about what happens when we're dying. We often talk about when we die, and we talk about how we could die sometimes. But Charmaine is going to talk to us on how we die and what they do for us in that treatment. It's a very interesting, emotional, and very sensitive interview. Before we start this very sensitive and tender show tonight, um, I've got some requests. If you're watching us on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe to our channel. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else uh, you watch your pod podcast. If you'd like to find me personally, you can find me on, uh, my first of all, my website, www.robertlindsaymillan.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and of course, YouTube. And now, without further ado, here comes... WWRS. <laughs> My WWRS tonight is about a very important factor in every single relationship we have. It's called trust. What is trust? How do you get it? How do you build it? Can you lose it? Can you get it back again? Well, trust is based on four elements. And those four elements are openness, acceptance, reliability, and congruence. 
openness, acceptance, reliability, and congruence. And if all four of those factors are present in a relationship, then trust is being built. If one or more of those elements are missing from a relationship, then trust is breaking down and indeed even being destroyed. So in now, now every relationship of these four elements are applicable. However, they're also relationship appropriate. And when I say openness, I have no secrets. You're going to have a different openness with your part with, with, with your husband or your wife than you would have, say, with a boss. You would know you would share everything that's that that um, applies to your work with your boss just as you would but but you wouldn't share with your boss what's the intimate the intimate parts of a relationship so it's relationship appropriate i have no secrets and by the way in a love relationship in a marriage there should be no secrets acceptance acceptance who you are is okay by me you don't have to change you dig you just the way you are that's acceptance and when you're around somebody that accepts you you just know that and you feel relaxed you feel comfortable within that acceptance reliability following through on what you say you're going to do or living a lifestyle that's consistent paying your bills telling the truth being on time um, following the rules um, being consistent that's reliable and the fourth element in, in building trust is congruence. Walking the walk, talking the talk, meaning that you live the values you propose that you have. So congruence is following through on the values you say you have. I love women, someone could say, but yet in a moment of anger would be reduced to the C word. Or um, I love all races, but yet in a moment of stress or tension or anger, or even humor, um, by telling a, a racist joke. Um, that would be incongruent. Congruence would be living up to what you profess you are. When all those factors are present, then the relationship trust is being built. When one is missing, trust is being broken down and destroyed. And by the time you get to the zero mark in terms of your trust account, um, so much damage has been done in your relationship, you'll have to work really hard to get it back again but it can be done. Just remember, openness, I have no secrets. Reliability, um, I follow through with my word. Acceptance, who you are is okay by me. And congruence, I walk my talk. I live up to my behavior, my morals, and my values. And when you do that, you're going to have very trusting, very happy, and very comfortable relationships. And that's my WWRS for tonight. What an interesting experience. We're going to be going all the way to Australia once again, probably my most favorite uh, uh, continent.
and we're going to be talking to Tinkerbell Boychuk. Tinkerbell Boychuk is one of the most impressive, determined, and accomplished people that I've met in a really long time. And as a sidebar, she happens to be an intuitive medium, psychic, um, an empath, a witch, that's with a W, and she's agreed to, and she's agreed to talk with us about her skills and about her amazing survival skills. Tinka, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to have you on my show. What a delight. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So um, I, what does, what's the, I have to ask you this question. We were just talking just before. Um, I really believe in your abilities. There's no question about that, but you, you, you're a psychic medium, intuitive empath, energy channeler, which um, healer. I, I would also say that you've got the makings of a really good um, uh, uh, mentor. But what's the difference between being intuitive and being empathic? Um, intuitive, or is it? Um, well, for me, intuitive, sometimes I just get that, I get a feeling. I get either visions from spirit, okay. there might be words. Um, Did you say spirit? Like yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, sometimes it's just like that gut feeling that I have. Empathic is different. I can I feel other people's emotions. I can understand exactly what they're feeling in that situation. And until I learned how to distinguish what was my feelings and what was their feelings, I used to think a lot of that was my own. And once I was able to determine that it was other people's energies that I was reading and picking up on, that's when it be able to it was made a lot clearer for me and I could distinguish between the two a bit more. So the connection, your personal connection with the per, that other individual um, is empathic. Um, your psychic or whatever is is the um, intuitive. Is that correct when you're led by spirit? And is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, I, I, th I think that's how I'm, I'm okay. saying it. Um, no, yeah, just, seeing it, yeah. Yeah, because sometimes I'll, I'll be with someone and I won't necessarily pick up on their, them empathically because they've either got their shields up or they've got things up, but I'll get intuitive messages that come through. Things mm -hmm. that I know about that person mm -hmm. that I wouldn't normally know because I've never met them before, I've never come across them before, but things that I know about them, how they are as a person, people surrounding them in their lives. How did you learn how to do that? And when did you learn how to do that? I think I've always had the gift, but I never really connected with it until probably 2016. I was at the end of my marriage um, and I was going through a really hard time. And for me, Facebook was my one way of connecting with people. Um, so I was reading a lot, going on lots of Facebook pages. I was watching a show in Australia that was on called Psychic TV that was on four nights a week. And I would stay up late every night that it was on and tune in and watch all the, um, the readers doing their thing and connecting that way. And then I realized that as they were reading that the people that they were reading for, I was picking up things and then they were actually see, saying the things that I was picking up on. So I was kind of getting a bit of a vibe for it then. Um, however, it's probably not until maybe 2018. Had you, had you, so in retrospect, um, were you picking up those things that either not acknowledging them or unconsciously following them? 
Um, I don't think I was, I was probably a bit of both because I didn't, I wasn't thinking about being psychic or having psychic abilities or anything like that. I was just, I was getting like a gut feeling about something. And because I wasn't able to determine at that stage, what was my own feelings or someone else's, I kind of didn't know if I was connecting or if I wasn't connecting, but probably in about 2018, 2019, that's when everything really kind of started like falling into place for me i was really connecting with spirit a lot more and being how did that happen um, i'm well, particularly I, interested in how did you contact or get in touch with spirit as you say so initially i had um, a mentor called maketa um she was one of the um the psychic mediums on ptv oh and, yes yeah and we connected and she is like a soul sister to me i, I love her dearly and um she made me aware of things that I wasn't really aware that I was doing. Um, I'm a huge writer. So if I can't express to someone how I'm feeling, or if it's something that I just need to get off my chest, so I'm not doing head laps with myself, I write things down. So I did a lot of poetry writing, a little of writing, getting things off my chest. And that's when she was telling me that, you know, my poetry is my spell work. That's me creating spell. That's me creating all these different energy and things like that. So once she told me that I was a bit more aware of what I was doing and what I was putting into my words and the energy that I was placing into it. Did I want to put it into a negative um, space or was I wanting to put that energy into a more positive space? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I did, I did do cards like tarot cards and Oracle cards initially because I needed that tangible evidence as something to, for me to see, like to, to believe. And then um, you rose above them. Yeah, and then this year I've I I still haven't I haven't got rid of them. I won't get rid of them, but I've put my oracle and tarot decks aside. And from about March this year, um, I've been purely going on my intuition, like my psychic, and my mediumship. So it's been extremely strong. How do you know the difference between spirit and Tinkerbell? Okay, so and Boychuk. Because there's 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 two different vibes with those names. <laughs> yeah. So, like when I know it's me, yeah. Um, like if I'm if I'm if I'm imagining something, I get it's from my left forehead. So okay. I get really? like visions or thoughts from there. If I get messages from spirit, it's always in my right ear, and the messages or videos or whatever images that are playing all come from the right side and then go across. So once I was able to determine the difference between the two. It made the connection with spirit so, a lot so, easier. So then you hear yeah. the words through your right ear yeah. and through your left side, you have the feeling or the energy or the vibes. Is that is that is that is that what you're saying? Because that, that's fascinating. I love that. Well, like, so for instance, like if I get a message from spirit, it'll yeah. be that within that one, two, three second kind of mark that comes from okay. the right side. All right. So I haven't had time to conjure up what could okay. be happening okay. or think about what was happening. Okay. If I'm, if I'm thinking too much about sure. it, that's when I know that I'm not connecting with spirit and that okay. that's me. I'm okay. just trying to drum something up, so to speak. All right. But um, from, from spirit, it's yeah, all through my right side and it happens okay. really quite quickly. Okay. That's really fascinating. So you're you're now at the point where um, you're the medium, yeah. rather than use a medium 
to do your work. You're, you're the medium. Has there been any differences in your throat in the last year or so? Um, what? Most definitely. Has there? Um, I think I have a very good, clear throat, um, throat chakra now. Um, I used to bite my tongue a lot and not yeah. say what was on my mind because fear yeah. of upsetting other people. Yeah. And by doing that, it was making me ill. It was making me sick. I was you know, having a lot of self-doubt and things like that and taking on energies that weren't mine. So the moment I started speaking my truth and being true to myself in every shape and form, everything just got so much clearer. Everything was so much better. Um, there was improvement all across the boards in my life in every shape and form. What kind of things do you tell people or talk to people about when you're doing your readings, be that um, through spirit or through um, you? By the way, I think both come through you, but one is, you know, like spirit brings it, to, but it's still coming through you. I just... Like... Well, <laughs> well, sometimes, like, it'll be a question that the, the sitter or the person that I'm reading for is asking, and that will incite a whole range of messages coming through. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can just pick up on their energy and I will say to them straight up, before we start, I'm picking up on this vibe, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Can you resonate with that? And that sort of gives me a vibe on and gives me a feeling on where exactly they're at and if I'm mm -hmm. connecting quite well to them. Um, quite often I've had, um, you know, mediumship and I've had those spirits standing there straight right in front of me, almost like a hologram of a person being really, really clear. Really? Um, you see that? that? And you just started doing that like when you were 40 or 41? You had, not even as a kid though? Um, not that I can remember. Like really? I, like I, oh. I feel like I have been connected, but I wasn't yeah. really aware. Like I've had lots yeah. of deja vu yeah. um, and things like that. And even now I have little flashbacks to certain parts of my life when I went, oh my God, I was mm. actually connecting with spirit. I but see. I think too, with people around me not believing in spirit or people around yeah. me not supporting the idea of, you know, being able to talk to spirit, um, it just sort of gets pushed away and pushed aside and then you sort of forget about it and don't do anything. Besides being a working professional, well, I'm just going to say psychic because I call myself that. So um, as, as being a working pro professional, um, you had to fight to get there it wasn't it wasn't like you just sort of became a professional you you've been fighting over the past few years um yeah. with some challenges I have, yeah. would you like to share maybe there's somebody oh, out like, there that you could inspire you certainly have inspired me so i was married i'd been married since i was 23 and i left my husband when i was 37 we had three children together and yeah. towards the end of my relationship, it was like, there was a domestic violence involved. I was 47, um, 45 kilos and I looked like a skeleton. And I was at the stage where I was like, if I don't leave this relationship on my own being, I'm going to be leaving in a body bag. Was getting that violence? It was, um, there was a lot of emotional, right. a lot of mental. Yes. There was a little bit of physical, but it was the emotional and mental that was just, debilitating um and the controlling aspect that he had over me was just diabolical um food for me was the only thing that i did have control over 
So I could decide whether I wanted to eat or whether I didn't want to eat. So I became anorexic because that was I as see. bad as it was. I had control over that. It was yeah. I had decided what was going in my mouth, how often that food was going in my mouth and when. Um, but that, I didn't like the way I was feeling. I didn't like the way I was looking. And I needed to make a change. And I was like, you know what? What's, what's worse? Two parents staying together and it creating this disturbing home life for our children or being having two parents that were separate and happy and having our children raise up and be happy and you know and have some stability um so I chose the latter I chose to leave and unfortunately I had to leave my children and they are with my ex-husband and his mum but I needed to do that for me I really I, I truly did and I needed to do that for them um and I hopped into another relationship pretty quickly after that and I was in that relationship for two and a half years. Um, and through that relationship, um, she was really quite supportive. And we had, um, we both had psychic abilities and we were encouraging each other and building each other up and things like that. But there was also drug abuse in there as well. And there was some drug abuse too while I was with my ex-husband. Um, I can happily say that I'm clean and sober and I'm doing fantastically well and Did I don't ever want to go back. So, with with your ex husband um, and ex partner, um, what was the Popeye the Sailor Man moment for you? And I think I should tell everybody. I should tell everyone else what what. So the Popeye the Sailor Man moment. If we think of the cartoon Popeye, um, in every episode, what happens is Bluto beats Popeye up, ties him up in chains, throws him in the ocean or something, and then he kidnaps Olive Oil, Sweet Pea, or Poop Deck Pappy, or any of the three, or all together. And then Popeye is at the bottom of the ocean, all in chains, and he says to himself. That's all I can stands because I can't stands no more. Pulls out a, a can of spinach, eats the spinach, breaks the chains, beats the hell out of Bluto, and saves olive oil, sweet pea, sweet pea, whoops, sweet, <laughs> sweet, sweet pea, or poop deck pappy, uh, or any other combination. So, what was the Popeye the Sailor Man moment for you? Well, for me, like in my marriage, it was. Yes. It was life or death for me, pretty much. It was wow. just like, um, if I stayed, I knew that I wouldn't be staying around for very long. I was, as I said, I was skeletal. I looked terrible. I felt terrible. I had no energy. Everything around me, I just felt was imploding. Um, and I'd found out that my partner was on a dating website. Um, and yes, that I kept that silent to myself for eight weeks. And then when he accused me of cheating, I gave him all the evidence on my phone and went, no. Um, and that was a turning point for me. So I, the moment that happened, I turned and I left and I never went back. And it was a really hard moment, but it was like the best decision that I ever made. It truly, truly was because I, I realized that I am worthy and I deserve so much better than this. And I deserve to give myself that happiness and not be reliant about someone else to make myself happy. Um, with my ex-girlfriend, um, it, the, that breakup really took me by surprise. I did not see it coming and I'm so grateful for that breakup. It was the breakup that I needed to have because it was the breakup that pushed me into five or six weeks of shadow work, locking myself in my room and just doing me. And I came out of that amazingly well. And like, 
you know, people were just going into lockdown in 2020. And I'm going, oh my God, I've already been in lockdown. This is amazing. I still don't have to see people. I can still focus on myself. I can still do this. Like to me being isolated was a gift. It was a reward. Like I was just thinking this is amazing. Um, and then a couple of months later, I became homeless. So I was couch surfing for seven months. And again, that just changed my world, but it opened my eyes to so many more other possibilities out there. And, you know, learning different family lives and different family um, situations and how everyone gets along and, and their scenarios. And I am forever grateful for that. You know, it, it, it's been amazing. It really has been. And then, you know, to be almost in a place now for 11 months and, you know, and looking after myself and I'm working again and things like that. It's just been a real, you know, sure what 80 trip, um, flip on how I used to be. And where so, I, was. Um, I know we connected sometime uh, a while ago. Um, so how did, how did that, this, cause I, I, I forget what, what happened? How did this happen? We have a mutual friend, Asha Messenger. Oh yes. And- She's been on the show too. Yeah, and um, you had commented on, she, she just actually commented that she'd had a reading done from you. And I had written on your po- on her post, I couldn't think of anyone more deserving. I'm getting right. teary thinking about this. Um, <laughs> and you replied to my comment. You didn't reply to anyone else's comment, but you replied to mine. Really? And yeah. There and must be something special that. about you. There was, and you made me feel that too. And you've been my mentor ever since. And that was in January. Um, and I'm extremely blessed to have you in my life. You may have made me realize things about myself that I wasn't recognizing. And you believed in me when no one else believed in me. And I'm truly grateful. So over the past nine, 10 months, the work that you've done, the growth that you've made has just been skyrocketing it's been awesome i've never seen anybody work so hard grow so much and and become so strong um you don't know this but i have a very special club there's not very many in the world it's called the courage club and the courage club is people that from all walks of life that reach down inside with all their strength when they're in trouble with all their strength and all their courage they come back yeah. and they can these very special people come into my courage club and when you are in the club you get your courage medal and this will be yours if we were in canada i would be pinning it on you but I'm going to be mailing it to you. So this is your courage pin. And I would like to welcome you to the Courage Club. Thank you. And um, if people would like to get a reading from you or connect with you, how do they find you? I have a Facebook page called Tinker's Spiritual Belly. Oh, yes. And that's Um, how we find you. Yeah. Yep. I'm also on Facebook as Tinker Bell Bocek. Yes. so yes, you can you can find me. You can email me at tinkerbellbocheck at gmail.com. And we can go from there. Thank you.
for being on. I'm so proud of you. You've come a long way, Pilgrim. Thank you. My guest tonight, Charmini Veronin, um, registered nurse and a specialist in palliative care. And um, I have to admit that I, I know Charmini and, and her family. And um, at times she, she and her family have consulted me. Tonight is the first time uh, I'm gonna get to the opportunity to hear what uh, Charmini has to say um, rather than what I have to say. Charmini, welcome to my side of the crystal ball, and it's so great that you're here with me. Thank you for having me, Robert. I'm very happy to be here and be on your show. Congratulations. Great. Thank you. So you are a palliative care nurse. Correct. What is that? What, what is a palliative care nurse? What, what, what do you do? Um, so I've done palliative care in, in, as a bedside nurse. So I worked in a hospital where I took care of patients while they're at the end stage of their life. Wow. Uh, and now I'm working where I deal with patients and families over the phone and trying to help them virtually, especially after the pandemic, um, to help them through that phase and also support them in the community. So, so, so doing it a little differently now. Yeah, so you're not actually doing that, but you have done all the, the hands-on work, but but now you're you're doing, what, what, what are you doing now in your role in palliative care? So with the experience I've had working in bedside, which is yes. the key, the base of palliative care, where the core of palliative, palliative care lives, I think. Um, so I'm using that experience to help patients and families uh, navigate through their um, palliative experience, um, especially post-pandemic. A lot of the families want to be home uh, and be with their loved ones. So trying to support pre-pandemic, pre, pre, um, um, where where more people would die, or sorry, complete their life or pass on. Um, in the hospital or in a more professional setting. And then post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, people wanted to complete their lives at home. Is that is that big, more prominent now? I, there was a huge shift and I lived through it as somebody who worked through the pandemic. Um, there was a lot of fears of being alone in the hospital because oh, yeah. there was a lot of restrictions for visitations and things like that. Um, so even when we felt that the families were struggling or the patient wanted to come in, the sheer fact that they are going to die alone changed that. Um, so there was a big push, uh, both from healthcare and personally, to help those families um, create that environment in their home where they could die peacefully, which is ultimately what you want, right? How does a girl like you end up helping people complete their lives. How, how did you get drawn into it? You, you've been a registered nurse for, for, for 10 years and five of those has been committed to palliative care. How did that happen? It was an accident. 
like did you get the short sh- straw or something is that is that you know when you graduate as a nurse when yes. i did graduate yep. as a nurse that's not the first job that most students want do you think i yeah because it's going backwards majority of nurses want to start off in med surge where they get to do learn all the different skills and you know take care of a patient in, in an acute setting palliative care is completely different and I think it was where I became the best nurse, actually. Really? So so how did you get there? Like, did somebody say, here, we've got this spot for you, or you needed a job? Or well, how did, did that my, happen? I did my training there. And, uh, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of landed a job there. And, you know, there's a saying, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know much about it other than I got a job. And I'm going to do the best I can. Right. You know, and uh, I went with it and I learned a lot. I, I, I changed as a person, actually, since that job. How did it change you? Um, initially, I used the example of uh, a soldier that goes to war, right? Uh-huh. So when they go to war and they see the horrible things that they see and they come back home, they can't expect their families to understand what they went through. So for me, when I went to work, it was a type of war for me. It was seeing people die and wrapping bodies and seeing families in misery, young children laying over their mother that's no longer alive. So it was hard for me. Do you think? Um, what an amazing sacrifice, commitment. Thank you so much. So it was hard for me to connect with regular people. Yes. Oh, you mean those that aren't dealing with people that are in acute care or, or completing right. their lives. Right, right. Well, who would understand that? So that's how I dealt with it. They, they, they can't understand it because they did not go through it. That's right. So over the years, I've come to realize that everyone is capable of doing that to their loved ones. It's just they're not put in positions where they have to do it. As in helping them complete their life. Right. I see. Um, I believe everyone is capable of doing that. um, As a support emotionally. Which, which would then make it easier for the support workers to be more detached technically is that is that uh, or or just with the details of of the work or the job i think it will help with the healing for both the person that's dying and the person that's going to grieve after as well what was it like the first time you experienced somebody completing their life i was scared what when you were watching it what what was it like when it happened um you know it didn't feel real right i didn't want to believe it okay um and also i didn't clinically understand when it was when that person actually died because they look like they're sleeping right Right. just right afterwards you mean right right so i didn't have the the clinical knowledge to know this is when they died right what are the things we're looking for 
you're just in shock, right? You're first, yeah. Um, but I, I had great, I had a great team that uh, were senior nurses than me. So me did did you become just detached after a while? Or just another day at work? No, no. Never I actually so. think um, it went the other way. Actually, where uh, I took it upon myself to prepare the patient and the family. And be in a position, you're in a position of power, aren't you? Right? I got it, I guess. So, uh, you know, I know that comes with great responsibility and you want to make sure that the information that you're giving, it empowers the family and not puts them in a position of vulnerability, right? So how, do, do, do people easily accept the fact that their, 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 their life is, um, coming to an end do, do, do most people say oh well, that's that's just the way it is or or do they kick and fight and yell and scream what what, what do they do um of course everyone's different oh. um i would say majority I, I worked with a lot of cancer patients so okay. oncology was my expertise and um, by the time they get to the phase of palliative care or palliative care is introduced to them, it's kind of like that wounded soldier uh, aspect in terms of their therapies they've been through. So they've come to a point where they're tired. Um, they don't wanna do it anymore. And they may be still fighting because they wanna live longer for their loved ones. Um, but there's an element of exhaustion there. So a lot of our work, actually, uh, and me and my colleagues, we talked about that. We spend a lot more time with families than the patient. And really? Like, oh, yeah. Big time. What do you do with the families? Well. This is fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. So, um, and the reason being, I think, is because when the patient's going through the treatment trajectory or that initial diagnosis, there's that fighting part. You're fighting the cancer, you're in a, in a world of treatments and going through the cycles, and you don't want to, no one is interested in talking about the end, you know, because that's not the headspace you're in. So when you're now presented with a terminal illness, and your oncologist is running out of ammunitions, which are your therapies for you, then the reality of your cancer, which is now not curable anymore, comes to the surface. Um, and at that point, I find that's when the families and everybody gets involved because the patient is no longer getting treatment and going about their lives. There's actually a timeline that's given to you. So approximately three weeks more or a month or a day or? A lot of the oncologists use scans, PET scans and results and things like that to give you, and they never give you exact number, but a range of time. So the reality of your mortality comes to the surface, that I am going to die very soon becomes a reality. You're no longer fighting this cancer. You are living with it. So, so um, what, what is the general acceptance then? What, what, what happens when someone 
Um, what happens if somebody says, no, I, 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 I'm not going to die. Um, I'm going to fight. And then they hate you because you're, you're looking after them. Have, has that ever happened? Oh yeah. Especially the young ones. Especially mm -hmm. young ones. Yes. And, 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 and young ones with the families, with their families, will they be more those ones that are not going to give up? They would be more hostile than ones that were more accepting Absolutely. have there have have people been abusive and say you did it you caused this death is that have you experienced the, that the oncologists really get the brunt of that yes okay they're they are the driver of the ship right right um it's like someone who lost the war that's how they see it they lost it do they really they, they really go through that even all they, they still do with it just about everyone it's honestly, I think, one of the hardest jobs to do. Well, it is what what the one that you did, or the or just to be in that field. It it is. I think yeah, I think anybody in in oncology has a hard time, but I find that the oncologist is the one that's supposed to give you that hope, give you that 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 option. This is what I'm going to do for you, sure. and to come around and tell tell you I don't have anything for you because of X, Y, and Z is it's like someone saying, I, I'm, you de I'm defeated, I can't, right? So they really do take it personally, yeah. So what's generally the person, the patient's response when, when they, the, the doctor says, there's nothing more we can do for you, but keep you comfortable. How do people respond to that? Um, I think depending on how the oncologist prepared them throughout the journey. Okay. Um, because especially if, if, it's, if the treatment was curative in nature, then you are in a position where you're giving, you're giving them the best of the best and you're shooting them with the strongest therapy that's available because your, your outlook is cure in nature. And when that no longer becomes curative, then it's, it's a losing battle for both parties involved. What benefit did you experience giving that kind of service to people kind? How did it make you a stronger, a greater, a more evolved being? How did that happen? What, what did it do to you? Or did it? Oh, of course. <laughs> Share that part. I think um, it really, when we all say it, it really makes us value the simple things in life. Um, you know, when, when we see a very sick patient get up and take a shower on their own, that's, that's a win for that patient, you know? Um, so we really do appreciate the simple things in life. And we actually um, talk a lot more about retirement than any other groups. I do. Yeah, we see so many people that retire and then within a year or two they're diagnosed and it's like your whole life you talk about your retirement only for you to now be running to the hospitals for appointments. And yeah, so well, we I... really do talk a lot about quality of life and balance and stuff because we see it day in and day out. How do you determine that, the quality of life? I, I um, had a friend in the last couple of years when you helped me with this friend um, who, who got sick um, with cancer um, and 
this this friend was not willing to give up the ship and right to the very end um put up and the whole family did too um how do you handle somebody like that that just will refuse to let go in spite of the fact that that they're quickly slipping away how do you handle that i I cheer them on do you because because that's what keeps them going i see right Right. so as a nurse you have to be a chameleon because you have to read the room if that is what she wants and that is what she desires as, then you have to support them as long as you're 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 not abusing your power. So, for example, that's where the oncologists struggle because they have the power to now give a treatment. But if that treatment is going to cause more harm than good, then there, then there's the abuse of power, right? As nurses, we have the ability to just work on the the sidelines of their symptoms, their their day to day. So for her, knowing that she's alive and she's going to keep fighting every single day is is what drove her. So if I were to break that, it's not going to do any good to her other than remind her. Hush her and make her bummed out at the end of her life. So, and then how do you deal with somebody that says, okay, um, I'm on that conveyor belt. I'm eventually going to be in the sawmill. Um, how do you deal with that person that, that says, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Um, how do you deal with them? We call them the easy case. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, welcome to our side of the, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, we can dig into it deeper. I find uh, we can do legacy work on them. We can prepare. We can really get into more than just their treatment and their trajectory, their families, you know, what about your your situation in your home? How are you going to organize your life so that your family just basically has to call your lawyer and everything is done, right? So, so besides being a physical hands-on, do the work, like, like give them the needles and put the needles in the lines and change the bedpans and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. You're also responsible for their emotional state of mind as well. Yeah. It's, it's an interdisciplinary team. So many people are involved in that care. But, a doctor, social worker, everybody's involved. But you're on the front line. Yes. We have the, we have the luxury. We say we have the luxury of um, spending a lot of time with so that is where we most of our work comes from. So we really get to know them, you know, their families and what's happening to them. So we are sort of the informer for the rest of the team because we have the luxury of having two or three patients a day and spending that time with them. So when one of the easy ones come to the awareness, okay, um, the inevitable life process, I'm going to, you know, go out like a man, or I'm going to go out like uh, maturely or in a spiritual way. Um, What type of things are they interested in as they're completing their life? What what do they think about? Do they they think about um, they could have done better at work or they could have been more successful in their hobby? What what kind of things do do most people seem to talk about 
At the end of it all, I realize even the miserable ones, um, ultimately it surrounds love. Really? So yeah. as in they gave too much or didn't get enough or? They just want to be, they just want to be around love. If that means being around their children, being around, being around a child that was estranged, let's say, oh. or um, the regrets that, that all resurfaces. So in the context of love is what I see um, mostly that sort of stays at the end, even till the end, I find that is what holds on more than money and everything else that they are dealing with. Yeah. Have you ever seen a situation where a parent um, disowned a child at the completion of their, their life? So that's interesting you say that, Robert. Um, I think people agree differently. Okay. And we had a situation where there was a young man and uh, the mother, agreeably so, was miserable and did not want to see her young child die before her. And she... She gave everybody a hard time appropriately. She wanted everything done, but the reality was he was not doing well. And um, so we were all nervous and dreading the day that he will die because we knew that day was coming. And when we called her and it was in the middle of the night, um, we try to call before they die just so that they could be around them. And there's certain indicators we have. And uh, she never came. So there's two ways you can look at it. So the one way is she didn't want to come or the other one is she didn't want to remember him that way. So I took the latter. So. How do you look after yourself? You know, I, I happen to know that in the last year, um, there was a loss in your families. Um, and uh, um, I'm going to dedicate um, this episode to, to your father-in-law, by the way. Um, at the end, we'll post a dedication to him. Uh, um, is it easier for you as someone who works in this, that field uh, to experience the the loss of, of, uh, of a loved one? Because I, I, you were very committed to him. You were remarkably loyal. Um, is it easier for you to, to go through that process because of the job you do? Or are you just like us mere mortals? <laughs> I, I think initially it was easier if, when, I was a, when I was the nurse. Okay. Because they don't mean anything to you. Like, person, like, like they don't touch your soul, right? Right. You're, right. you're able to clinically look at the issue, understand yeah. what's happening, and you're, you're giving the reality check on that. The minute I removed that layer, and I was the daughter-in-law, it, it opened up other cans of worms <laughs> that I had yes. on. Um, so it was actually very painful, Robert. Yes. I, I, do, I do recall. But well, I'm using that to help others for sure. I think it, it humanizes the, the the experience now for me. Like I don't I don't mind crying on the phone. <laughs> so with the patients, right? So um as well, thank you for sh sharing that. That's 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 very, very brave of you. Um, 
Um, so I, that it, it's very touching. Uh, it, it, it is sort of kind of caught me off guard a bit. Um, so what would you say to people as they're facing the, the, the loss of their uh, a family member? What, what advice would you give them? The ones that are left behind here. I would say um, the greatest service you can do to somebody is advocate for them. Because okay. it's a lot. It's a lot to handle when you're sick and you're not remembering anything. You're asked to take care of yourself and to deal with appointments and doctors. And I, so I say, if you can, if you can't deal with what's going on, the least you could do is be there to support them, you know, arrange their appointments, take them to their appointments, um, get them the psychosocial support that they need, sit down, have a tea with them, you know, you know, normalize the fact that this is part of their life. And interestingly enough, when you do that, all that time you're thinking you're doing that for them, but the entire time you're doing it for yourself. You are doing it for yourself so that you wouldn't have as much work or, or that you would, it would be easier for you to deal with the person's completion or both. So we believe, or I believe that, especially with the cancer diagnosis, the grieving starts upon diagnosis. Okay. There's a lot of misconception that it happens after they die. And I believe that it happens upon the information that's relayed to you. So of course the true grieving happens once the patient dies. But what you do from the time that you are involved in that person's life till the end of their life, is going to make a profound difference to the rest of your grieving process, I believe. I am deeply touched by how and what you shared with us and I'm so thankful. Thank you for your commitment and your service and thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Robert. Well, this brings us to the end of another fascinating, sensitive, feeling and enlightened uh, episode of My Side of the Crystal Ball. I'd like to thank my guest tonight, uh, Nurse Charmini Veronin, uh, palliative care expert specialist. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your information, and thank you for um, your service. I'd also like to thank uh, Tinkerbell Bochak in Australia. Thank you for sharing your personal life, your stories, your um, developing psychic ability. Just thank you for being Tinkerbell. Just before I go, I have a request. If you're watching us on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe to our channel. You can um, find us on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you find and listen to your podcast. If you're looking to find me personally, you can find me on uh, my website, www.robertlindsaymilne.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. 
Well, that brings us to the end. I'd like to say thank you again. And before I go, just remember, do good, stay safe, and above all, just be kind. Good night, everybody.